New Orleans was once the absinthe drinking capital of America. Today, people come to the city to do many things, and one of them is still to drink absinthe. We talk with writer Mariel Sanji about the absinthe frappe and absinthe in New Orleans. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Mariel Sanji. She's a writer and journalist in New Orleans, and she's written a really, really fun book about the absinthe frappe. Welcome, Mariel. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. So tell me what your interest in absinthe was before you started to write this book. Were you like already an absinthe enthusiast? Well, I wouldn't have called myself an enthusiast, but I've always liked absinthe. I thought it was a unique spirit and I liked the taste of it. I know it is an acquired taste for some people, but I did like it. And when Jenny Keegan from LSU Press approached me about contributing a book to the iconic New Orleans cocktail series, she sent me a list of different cocktails like the Raffignac and the Cocktail a la Louisiane. And Absinthe Frappe really stood out to me because it has such a history. And I knew some of the history, I was familiar with the basics of it. But as I really started to research, I was like, oh, this would be a really good book because it touches a little bit of everything, science, history, just a little, and New Orleans and Europe and just a little bit of everything. So I thought it'd be a really good book, but I have become more of an enthusiast since I've written the book. Definitely. (laughs) I bet you've drunk (laughs) a lot more absinthe frappes. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) My collection has grown for sure. Do you find that as you go from one place to another and different people make the absinthe frappe for you, that it is different or does it taste pretty much the same no matter who makes it? Because, you know, some drinks, it makes a big difference who makes it. Sure. Well, the thing that about the absinthe frappe, I think because it's such an old cocktail and there was such a gap, you know, not only was absinthe banned, but there was prohibition. And then when prohibition was lifted, absinthe was still banned. So the absinthe frappe kind of didn't exist. They had herb saint frappes, but absinthe frappes really didn't exist in for a really long time, like other cocktails in the lexicon. So I think a lot of bartenders, they when absinthe when the ban of it on absinthe was lifted, they put their own spin on it. So a lot of places do serve the classic with just absinthe, simple syrup over crushed ice. But other places like Mr. B's, I discovered, they'll serve it straight up with egg white in it, which is interesting, kind of like a a frothy kind of cocktail. And others serve it with no ice. Jewel of the South serves a pretty classic, but neat with no ice. So I think a lot of bartenders, they keep the spirit of the absinthe frappe but they put their own spin on it okay well all right i guess i guess that that's to be expected because people have been 
changing cocktails forever. So mm-hmm. sure. It and it gets to a point where you wonder if it truly is an absinthe frappe. You know, it has like the simple syrup and the absinthe in it. But once you start adding all these extra things, it's like, is it an absinthe frappe or is it now something else? You know, I guess right. it just depends on if you're a purist or not when it comes to that kind of thing. Right, right. So you said something when you first began to speak about, you know, absinthe and the flavor of absinthe being an acquired taste, but that you really liked it. So why is it, do you think that you liked it? You didn't have to acquire that taste. Well, I consider it, I think that the the people who like it, like things on the more savory side, I tend to lean toward the more savory side of things rather than sweeter side. And I think absinthe just has, because of like the anise and the kind of little bitterness in it, it leans more towards the savory side of things. And maybe, you know, I think maybe I tried it early enough that I just kind of went with it. (laughs) That's probably part of it. Well, were you ever an anise eater? Like, do you like sweet Italian sausage that has a lot of anise in it and things like that? Are those flavors that you, that you are attracted to? Somewhat, somewhat. I mean, I, it was never something that I sought out, but it's something that I enjoy. I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to food and my palate. There's nothing I don't like. I can't really say there's no food I don't like. So yeah, so I'm attracted to things a, li- a little bit, maybe a little different. And so absence fits that category. Yeah. So, all right. You said that the, that absence, and of course, I think absence is a really wonderful way to learn history. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I think if you wanted to sip your way through history, that you could you could do that. So, tell me a little bit about absinthe. Where did it come from? What does it taste like for those people who've never tried it before? And is absinthe frappe what you would consider the the first drink somebody should try? Sure. So, just a, a brief history. Absinthe was invented by the Enriad sisters in the 1700s and in Switzerland. And it was it started as a medicinal drink for stomach issues. And like so many things people discovered like it makes you a little drunk. And so it really took off in France thanks to Perno and the Perno factory and they started mass producing it and that's when it really really took off in France and it just became this and the interesting thing about it is it started as something that kind of like lower class people were seen drinking and the upper class kind of looked at it as like that's not our thing but as time went on and it had to do with something called the great French wine blight wine fields were obliterated by this aphid called phylloxera wine prices went up and so the upper class started drinking you know not exclusively but started drinking absinthe in the place of wine because absinthe was cheaper and so they they had these accessories like absinthe fountains these very fancy glasses flared glasses to prepare it they had absinthe spoons where they put the sugar and they'd slowly drip water through the sugar through the spoon into the absinthe to loose it which is to make it cloudy and release all the oils in it So it really became a phenomenon. And as far as the absinthe frappe goes, that was invented here in New Orleans at the old absinthe house by a bartender named Caetano Ferrer. And it's it's a very simple drink. It's absinthe, simple syrup. You can put a little mint in it and crushed ice. 
And as far as the first, if you've never ventured into absinthe, I don't know if you should start with an absinthe frappe because it's essentially a classic, just straight absinthe with sugar and ice in it. I would start with something a little more subtle, like a Sazerac that has an absinthe rinse. So you get those flavors, but it's not just a, a complete punch of, of absinthe. And in my book, I did put quite a few absinthe cocktails aside from the absinthe frappe. If you want to experiment with absinthe and see what your flavors are and see what your taste is. And if there's anything in particular, you lean toward more than the absinthe frappe, which you might have to work up to. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty strong. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> the good thing is about it, you can add a little more, you know, you can add a little more club because there's club soda in it too. So you can add a little more club soda in it to maybe weaken it a little bit or a little bit more ice. You know, you can kind of, you know, tweak it to fit your palate. But again, if it's your first time ever without absinthe, I would recommend something a little more on the lighter side. My first experience with absinthe was just the drip. And mm. uh, so <clears throat> there was only, you know, one sugar cube. And uh, so it was, was pretty, pretty much just a hit, a hit yeah. of, of absinthe flavor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, but, you know, I always, I, I always have liked the flavor. My mother was one of those people who would pick the black jelly beans out of the jelly oh, yeah. bag and she ate the, the, the licorice flavor just, you know, so that was what she wanted. And uh, my grandparents were from Sicily and they used to give me little boxes, the size of a matchbox, a mm -hmm. small matchbox, like a pocket size matchbox yeah. um, that were full of candied anise seeds because anise and fennel grew wild in, in Sicily. And so people would pick the seeds and then candy them and give them to children to chew on. Wow, and that's, that's really people, unique. <laughs> other people, I think, also chewed on them as like a breath mint, not mm -hmm. mint, but just a breath purifier or something. And so if if you grow up chewing on that flavor, you you like it. And uh, so I can understand how Europeans might be more likely to sympathize with that flavor um, than Americans, because it really is not something that we, that we just do ordinarily. I mean, you sure. have to make yeah. that choice. I'm going to have anise, you know, and, yeah. I, and I asked you about Italian sausage because I mean, that was a big deal was to put, you know, grind up your anise seeds and put them into the sausage. And so I guess I, I've been eating it all my life. So to me, it wasn't just this new idea because I know that yeah. know, <laughs> red licorice is going to sell a lot better than really licorice flavored licorice. Yeah. Um, so, which is just too bad, you know, because it is a really interesting flavor. So what, what, let's talk a little bit more about absinthe itself, because absinthe has a lot of, of a storied past, shall we say. And mm -hmm. uh, how is it that it became banned? And what do you think all the influences were that made that happen? So a lot of it had to do with 
uh, like I had mentioned earlier, the great French wine blight. There was wine was never in danger of being replaced by absinthe. But a lot of the winemakers in France got nervous because they saw everybody drinking absinthe and really enjoying absinthe. So they started to push against it. And they actually backed the temperance movement. And they said, you know, distilled liquor, including absinthe, is what leads to alcoholism. They didn't consider fermented alcohol like wine a problem. They considered that a part of the meal. They said alcoholism comes with fermented liquor like absinthe, and it needs to go. So that was part of it. And then another part of it was a scientist named Victor Magnin, who conducted experiments in which he injected thujone, which is a chemical found in wormwood, and wormwood is an absinthe. He injected thujone into animals in large amounts. And the, it, this caused the animals to seize up and die. So he that's he used that as an example of saying, see, thujone is dangerous. Thujone can kill you. Thujone is what's in absinthe. Now, the reality is the, there's such small traces of thujone in absinthe. It'll, it's not going to affect you at all. You'd have you would die of alcohol poisoning before you died of thujone poisoning. poisoning. But yeah, so so in those, but in those days, you know, you just go going by what doctors told you. And this scientist seemed to know what he was talking about. So that sent people into a panic. And the impetus for it really being banned was a man named Jean Lefray, who he started his, he was just a regular working man who started his day with not only drinking absinthe, but drinking brandy and scotch and all, and red wine and all these different alcohols, went to work, came home, got into an argument with his wife, and end up taking a shotgun and not only murdering his wife, but murdering his two very small daughters. And when he went to trial, rather than focus on the fact that he was drunk on all of these different alcohols, they really focused on the fact that he was drunk on absinthe. And so it became this man drank absinthe and killed his entire family. So these rumors of it makes people crazy, it makes people do things they wouldn't normally do. And it's, you know, it scared people. And so that really was the push that led it to being banned. And so it was banned in Europe, and then it was banned in the United States in 1912. Although ironically, in the United States, it was never, it wasn't as popular as it was ever in Europe. It was popular here in New Orleans because here in New Orleans, they have loyalties to France. It's a French city. So whatever they were doing in France, they wanted to emulate here. But as far as other cities in the United States, they had it, you know, they had it in Baltimore and San Francisco, but it was not the way it was here in New Orleans. So when it was banned, it was really a shoulder shrugger. It wasn't as big of a deal as it was when it was banned in Europe. So but in so real, which, which when it was banned in Europe? Which countries in Europe do you know? Because yeah. no, there was no like, oh, let's ban it in Europe. You would have to go country to country. In those right. Countries. It was banned in France and it was banned in Switzerland. It was never banned in Spain and it was never banned in England because it, in like places like that, because it just, again, it wasn't as popular and it wasn't really as much of a thing there. They really wanted to get it out of France. I think that in Switzerland and those were the main countries that it, that was where the countries it was banned in. Sure. And I could see where that was a lot of protectionism too for the wine industry. So that, that would be, absolutely important. that would be important. So 
Okay, let's talk about New Orleans. So New Orleans was a place where people did drink absinthe. Mm-hmm. I think we can call New Orleans the absinthe drinking capital of America, probably. Absolutely. Without yes. any hesitation. Um, yes. So so what did we do once it was banned? What And, you know, because I, th- I always feel like the Department of um, Food and Drug Administration was new and they were looking for something to do to make their mark, as well as the Department of Agriculture. They were trying to assert themselves as important for the health of America. And so, of course, they picked something that didn't have a lot of ripples or didn't make a lot of ripples because not that many people drank absinthe, but sure. uh, it still it still was there. And we actually had our ban before France enact, enacted mm-hmm. their ban. So, yes. and I guess that's partly because of the bureaucracy of France or whatever, but it was, you know, it was a kind of thing that was, a, as you said, a, a shoulder shrugger for most places. Mm-hmm. But in New Orleans, I think that it was really, it was important and that flavor, like the Ohen cocktail of Rex, right. all of that, that flavor was something that was still in New Orleans at that time, I think, because of just the connections to Europe that we continued even into the, the 20th century. Sure. So, well, the thing is, so absence was banned. And then shortly after we had prohibition. So we had this, you know, which like I I write in the book, you know, New Orleans doesn't really take kindly to rules. So New Orleans really worked around that. And, you know, they, they snuck alcohol. It real, I don't think prohibition was the big thing here, the way it was elsewhere, you know, because we find our way around things. But after prohibition ended, you know, of course, people wanted that taste. And that's where Herb Saint came in. And that was invented by J.M. Legendaire, who is, again, a New Orleanian, which is a con- another connection to New Orleans. And it was touted as absinthe without the sin. And it's basically all the ingredients of absinthe without wormwood. So you, it could be legally sold. It had that same taste and flavor as absinthe. And even today, you know, a lot of these bars you go to and you'll order a Sazerac or you'll order another cocktail that calls for absinthe. And you'll see it's made with herb saint, which I always say you should special request absinthe if you're going to have a Sazerac especially. But I think a lot of places do that because herb saint, of course, is cheaper than absinthe. And a lot of people won't know the difference anyway. Mm-hmm. But but so but that was how that came around. And again, that's another connection. I kept discovering these little connections to New Orleans. And that was another connection to New Orleans of herb saint. So Herb Saint is really, really a New Orleans drink. I mean, not only because of the people who invented it, but I know I was giving a talk about my book, Lift Your Spirits, and Mm -hmm. I was in New York giving the talk. And when I flew up to New York, I said, I'm not going to bring my drinks with me because I don't need to. I'll just go to a liquor store in New York and just pick up everything and and go to the place where I'm going to be doing this, this demonstration. I went to five liquor stores and I could not find Herb Saint anywhere. And so I wound up having to make 
the Sazerac with absinthe, yeah, <laughs> which was okay. Because, but I was talking about New Orleans, so I really wanted it to be sure. herbsy. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the last place when when they told me that they didn't have herb saint, what was it? They never heard of it, you know yeah. that kind of thing. I said, oh, just give me a bottle of absinthe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's incredible because here, you know, they sell herb saint at Rouse's, you know, the grocery store, (laughs) you know? So it's like, (laughs) I know it really does make a difference. It's just everywhere. And you, you know, that it used to have on its label before they called it herb saint, they used to call it new Orleans absinthe. Oh, well, there you go. Mm -hmm. And the the feds made them change their label because they said, you can't even use the word. Right. Yeah. And so then they changed it to Herb Saint, which was, I guess, their way of thumbing their nose. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody knew what it meant. So that was okay. Oh, my goodness. I I was really shocked to find that nobody had absinthe at all. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Herb Herb Saint at all. So anyway, it gave me a nice story to to talk about when doing the demonstration. So that was okay. But it was kind of frustrating to to not be able to find Herb Saint. And it would have been easy enough, I guess, to check a bag and put it in, in a bag and take it up there, you know. But. Sure. But, you know, you're not thinking about that. I would think you could get it too, especially New York. I would I know, imagine. I know. Have everything. I wasn't going to, you know, Kansas City or Cleveland or something. Right. You know? So anyway, but it, it doesn't matter. But it was just funny to me that uh, you just could not find it. And if people didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. So I'm... I'm also kind of interested in the story of how that ban was lifted because it was finally lifted and New Orleans plays a role in that too. Absolutely. So it was lifted on March 5th, 2007. And, but the story actually dates back to 1993 to a man named Ted Rowe. And he started becoming interested in absence. He just happened to read a book on the subject and he was, he couldn't understand why it was banned. And so he started researching it. And, it's, and of course, he came across the Thujon story and he found a couple of bottles of banned absinthe. And the thing that makes this story really special is Ted is a scientist. So he had the ability to test some of this pre-banned absinthe and find out just how much Thujon is in it. Let's get to the bottom of it. Like, if it's so dangerous, let's see how much is in it. So he... He had the ability, he tested this absinthe, and he found that, of course, the thujone in this pre-banned absinthe, it's such such trace amounts that it's not harmful. So he began this process of having these restrictions lifted. And his own absinthe, Lucid Superior, was the first absinthe that was legally sold in the United States on March 5th, 2007. And today, not only does he have Lucid, but he has a whole line of absence called Jade Liqueurs, which is the top, t- considered the top tier absence. And, you know, one of his absence, 1901, is a, re- is a replica of a pre-ban absence. And all of his absence contain herbs that are grown in the same place in France. It's where the herbs were for absinthe in the 19th century. He distills all of his absinthe in France at the Comier Distillery. It's a very famous, well-known distillery. So it's genuine, authentic absinthe. 
So when people say to me, oh, what are your absinthe recommendations? I always say go for one of Ted Burrow's jade liqueurs because he's considered, you know, he's called the godfather of absinthe in a lot of ways because he is responsible for helping to lift these restrictions. And he has this amazing absinthe line. And again, he's a New Orleanian. So that's another connection to New Orleans. And it's amazing. Again, when I was researching all these things that circle back to New Orleans, just in every little piece of the story, it was really, really interesting and incredible. So yeah, we can drink absinthe thanks to his hard work. So does he double distill or does he distill and then macerate herbs in there and simply filter them? I'm, I, I really, I don't know. I really don't know the ins and outs of it. I, I would imagine, however it was made, like I said, however it was made in the 19th century is how he does it. He does it. I'm not, I'm not sure of the exact science of distillation when it comes to absinthe, admittedly, but you know, he's he's the person to ask. And the great thing about him is if you reach out to him and contact him with any questions, he's more than happy to talk to you and give anybody inf any information. He was nice enough to come to one of my book talks. He surprised me at one of my book talks. And, you know, people had questions and he was like fielding questions, you know, things that I'm not 100% not sure of. And, you know, he's like, oh, I don't want to cut in on your time. I'm like, no, please. Like, you know what you're talking about. I'll, 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 I welcome it, you know, of course. So if you can have a conversation with them, it's always interesting. So tell me, did you do any serious research on wormwood itself? Not not the thujone, but just the wormwood itself and its uses. I, As far as other uses outside of absinthe, I'm not sure. You probably know better than myself because I was just focused on absinthe research and how it pertained to absinthe. But if I'd love to, if you have information, I'd love to. Well, you know, wormwood certainly is is more than just um, a decorative plant in people's gardens, and mm. so it was used. It was used prior to absinthe, and it was a, an ingredient in the toolkit of pharmacists, you know, and people mm. who are um, herbalists and such. And it was called wormwood, I believe, because people thought it was a vermicide. And that, so, you know, it's been used since the Egyptians. And sure. so the, you know, the idea that it it might do some harm to you, I, I don't think that the Egyptians ever talked about that. And so <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I mean, they talked about everything else. So mm -hmm. certainly we're very big record keepers. So I think it's kind of interesting that all of a sudden Wormwood was evil, you know? Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. And to kind of like spin off that, like I said earlier, it was used, absinthe was originally seen as a medicinal, a medicinal thing. So that I'm sure that it was connected to the Wormwood as it's er herbal healing and all that. Right. Right. Yeah. That was just the herbalist, the herbalist way kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> So let me ask you about what you might be doing. What else can we see from you in the future? Obviously, you're going to continue talking about absinthe, but you know, you're going to probably eventually do something else. Yes. So I'm a food writer. So I write about local food and restaurants and dining. And I've actually started researching about New Orleans coffee history, which I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do with that, but 
I started researching New Orleans coffee history because I always had a curiosity as to how New Orleans became this, you know, this huge coffee city. It's such a part of our culture. And I've discovered so much and so many interesting things as far as like importation and chicory and New Orleans history and how it's such an important part of what made New Orleans what it is. It really put New Orleans on the map in the 19th century and importation in New Orleans became really the city to be in because of, of coffee importation, because it, it, it was where business was happening in a lot of ways. So that's been really interesting. So I've kind of been, again, I'm not 100% sure, sure what I'm doing with that, but it's been really, really interesting. Well, we've been talking about a coffee exhibit for next year. So I, I'll have to talk to you more later. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds so, that sounds really interesting. It's like, yeah, it's such an important part of the New Orleans story for sure. So of course, I do want to put in a little plug for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and our absinthe exhibit. Yes, um, absolutely. We do have a huge number of artifacts, thanks to the collection of Ray Bordelon, who is a really serious absinthe historian. Mm -hmm. and, and that is on display, as I say, at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. So tell us where we can get your book and where you might be speaking soon. Sure. So I just wanted to say about the Absence Museum yes. at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is it's such an incredible collection. You really can't really wrap your mind around it until you go see it. Like Ray's collection and Ray was so kind to help me with my research about old Absence House. He's really top, top of tier when he comes to that information and, and he's just so generous about it yes. yes absolutely like he's done incredible research like he could he told me where Cayetano Ferrer was buried I'm like wow that's incredible <laughs> you know <laughs> but like the collection of spoons and absinthe yeah glasses and the bottles and all just the everything that was produced back then that you don't even think about that was branded in absinthe is at that museum it's really an incredible incredible collection so as far as, I'm not sure, I think this is going to air maybe next week, but this weekend after this air or before this air, but before this airs, I'm going to be at the Louisiana Book Festival, which I'm looking forward to. So, and I'm going to have some things coming up, hopefully close to the holidays. I'll, I'm planning on maybe doing something with Garden District Bookshop. I know they do a holiday thing every year. So yeah, and on my social media, I always post about on my Instagram, on Instagram.com slash Nolachick. I always post about any talks and events I have coming up. So hopefully I'll do a few more before the end of the year. Yeah, that sounds really, really fun. I want to thank you so much. Your book, I presume, is not only locally available, but also you can get it online, Amazon. Oh, yes. Everywhere, anywhere you prefer to buy your books, I say. So if Amazon, local bookshop, wherever, any, any place can order it. Even if they don't have it on the shelf, they can order it for you. So thank you so much for being with us today. I think absinthe is a really special topic. It's so New Orleans, but it's also very, you know, just kind of, worldly. Mm -hmm. There's that, that whole connection to Oscar Wilde and to Luce Lautrec and all and of Van Gogh. Yes, and Van Gogh. Yeah. And all of those romantics who, who loved the feeling that they had. 
They simply didn't know that they were just drunk. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they thought it was something special. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks so much, Muriel. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.